my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Today, we're so excited to welcome fashion designer Rebecca Minkoff to the show. She is also the author of the new book, Fearless. So a t-shirt started it all. Tell us about it. So I was 20 years old. I had gone and been a guest at this artist convention in the Bahamas. I actually couldn't afford to even get on the trip, but I was told if you get five other people to get on the boat too, 
uh, you can go for free. So that's how I paid my way. And I loved all the Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire sort of cut up, but you know, beaded shirts. But I was like, I don't want to wear a tourist t-shirt. I want New York. So I came home, bought an I Love New York shirt, cut it up, DIY'd it. That was a thing then. I'm sure you both can remember that and bedazzling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Gen Y doesn't bring that shit back. But I wore it. My sister-in-law wanted one. And so she wore it and had dinner with Jen Elfman, who was a very well-known celebrity at the time. And I sent it to Jen on September 9th, 2001. She wore it on Jay Leno a couple weeks later, and he asked her about it. And obviously 9-11 had happened. So anything that said New York on it was far more meaningful. And she said my name on national television. And back then, that actually did something for a brand. And I got, you know, inbound emails, however people could reach humans, you know, when email was still a thing or not, not a thing, um, and was making that shirt. And that's all I did for nine months. I would bike to different areas in the city, negotiate with the, with the men who sold these, I love New York shirts and then come home and cut them up and bedazzle them or you name it. And that was, it wasn't an overnight success, but it allowed me to call stores and say, Hey, I have something else besides this. Will you let me show you my, my goods? Do you remember the first time you, you had this work ethic and, and when it began? I do. My mom in the 80s, to make part of her living, sold what's called cast covers. So 80s, neon, nylon sheathing to cover your cast to make you look cool. And she would sell it at the flea market. And I just remember going... I want to sell something at the flea market. This is the coolest thing ever. And so, you know, she paid for enough materials for me to make some jewelry and some really terrible puffy paint sweatshirts and some, you know, bad spin art. And I set up a little card table and I didn't sell a thing. But that whole week preparing for that flea market was like such an exciting week that I got to make stuff and I was going to sell it and people were going to see it. And so I think it started then. Um, and then throughout my life, the answer was always no, you're going to have to earn it. You're, you know, you're going to have to make it and figure it out. So when I, when I finally realized that that sentiment was not changing, I, you know, started babysitting as early as I could to buy my sewing machine and, you know, just started figuring out how do I make money because it's not coming from my parents. So you get really excited. You prepare all week to sell at this little table and you don't sell anything. Yeah. How did you not feel defeated? I felt totally defeated. I felt like such a loser. I still, I have that same feeling now if I come out with a really exciting collection or a piece and it's like, no one cared. Like, I just worked so hard for this. So I think that was the first taste of, oh, not everything I do is going to be wanted. How do you overcome that? Like, how do you get past that even today? I think having that happen a lot helps. You have perspective and you sort of know that that's part of this. I think that I'll always set high goals for myself, but I don't go into a shame hole if I don't make those goals. So I think it's perspective and, and knowing that you're not going to get everything you want. And then when you do get what you want or you, you achieve something, it feels that much sweeter for it. Your mom strikes me from reading the book as someone who was a little bit, you know, of tough love that she instilled in you, which really helped. Does that reflect how you've been parenting your own kids? So here's what I'm experiencing with my own kids. I am being as tough and I'm saying, if you want something, you have to earn it. And my kids are just like, eh, never mind. I don't want it that badly. 
And I'll watch my daughter be like, I want, I want, I want, I want. Like, anytime she's a toy, can I have that for my birthday? Can I have that? Can I? I'm like, no, you have to earn it. And, and then she's like, on to the next. And so I'm at this weird struggle where I'm trying to replicate what really worked for me. And my kids just don't care. They're like, eh, who needs it? That's really hard. I think it's a generational thing as well. It might be. I was trying to explain to my son the other day. I was like, so summer camp, it cost us this. That means that's why mommy works. And and he finally started to get it. I was like, so when I asked you to take your dishes to the sink, that's helping me. But it took me like talking to him like he was two for him. He's nine for him to be like, okay, I should help out my parents more. Take us back to when you were first in New York and you were struggling. Where were you living? What was that like? And what finally made the leap to Rebecca Minkoff, the brand? So when I first moved to New York, I I think I had thought that my parents would help me out with an apartment. And I just assumed they'd rent me one. And they were like, oh, hell no, we're not doing that. Um, And so I actually had a really good friend that was at Fordham University that he had lived with us off and on in high school because of his family situation was not, he did not come from a good home. And so he said, come stay with me. So I stayed with him in his disgusting dorm room, like three men, just bad college men. And that lasted for about three weeks. And then my parents said, okay, we're going to come check on you, make sure you're okay. And we had dinner with my dad's first cousin and they made some deal with her. They're like, all right, if you watch her daughter two nights a week, She'll let you stay here for free in the playroom, but you have to clean up every night. That's your option. And I was like, cool. So I did that for about nine months. And by that time, I had saved up, I guess, enough money that I met this old lady through this art center that I was frequenting. And she said, I have a room you can rent. Uh, My mom sleeps in the living room. I sleep in the bedroom and I have one extra room and it's 850 bucks a night. And that felt like so much money, not per night, per month. But I was like, I got to get out of this playroom. I got to be able to unpack my clothing. Little did I know that this lady who was like 70 and her mom was 92, she would like check to make sure I made my bed at night, you know, the next day and boys couldn't come over. So it wasn't like I just had a room. I had like a grandma. (laughs) So once the shirt took hold and I had moved to an apartment again, uh, I rented a small closet from a woman and I had a mattress on egg crates. That was when the shirt was at its heyday and I thought I'd made it. I had a five-piece clothing collection, and I sort of did the clothing designer thing for about four years, could not make ends meet, was slowly going into credit card debt. I was not able to qualify personally for a credit card, but my dad co-signed, and he's like, I'm not going to pay for this. You are, but I'll put my name on it. And I was hitting close to like $60,000 in debt, and I was like, how the heck am I going to do this? And the clothing wasn't, it was doing well, it was a small, you know, business to be proud of, but I couldn't live on it. I was styling on the side. That's how I was paying the bills. And then, um, Jenna, the same woman who wore the shirt, we were having lunch in LA and she said, do you make bags? And I just lied to her. And I said, yeah, I do. And I had been thinking about bags, but I hadn't really decided to dive in. And that's when I rushed back to New York. I had a two week deadline to make her a bag and I made two samples. I overnighted it And FedEx misdelivered it by about two hours. So her assistant called me and was like, we started shooting. Where the hell is this bag? And no, it's not going to make the movie. And I was devastated. Um, That was like my last 1600 bucks. The over the cash advance from the credit card machine was no longer working. And my dad was like, how are you paying this back? So I started carrying the sample around and enough women stopped me on the street that I was like, maybe there's something here. Maybe I should try to sell it. 
And I showed it to a friend of mine who was a buyer in LA at the time with his store Satine. And she said, it's incredible. I want to buy it. I'm going to buy 12 and I'm going to have my friend at Daily Candy write about it. And if you're an elder millennial or a geriatric millennial, you know what Daily Candy is. So she wrote the article. It was called The Catwalk of Shame. And I called it the morning after bag. And the rest is definitely not history, but that was the birth of that bag. And, and now the brand as we know it today. I love that story because you missed the deadline, but it turned out to still be an open door. It wasn't the end of the story. It was the beginning of the story. It was. And I think I felt doubly pressured, not only because I really didn't have any more money, but also like, I got to turn this into something. It can't just be that this is the end. And I'm like, all right, I'll go home now. And now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be. To be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years 
and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us the story of the 300 bag order from the department store. And I don't think most people understand the economics of department stores and the fashion world. Yes. So most department stores, when they buy you in the beginning, is a relationship of like, we're going to buy you, see how it goes. Once you're sort of more well-established, then you start helping pay for things. So if you see an ad in a, in a magazine or a catalog that you get from a department store, the designer actually paid for that. Or if they don't meet the sales expectation of you have to sell X amount a week and they put the bags on sale, the designer pays for that. Um, my showroom had warned me, do not sell to a department store. You are not ready to sell to a department store. And I said, I'm going to sell to a department store. Yes, I'm taking the order. And she had her reasons. She felt like you needed enough. She said you needed 500 specialty stores to even have a brand awareness enough that a woman walks into a department store and it's Gucci, Prada, Tory Burch, Marc Jacobs, whoever, that she's going to go over to the little stand with you know, like a placard and go like, oh, this is who I was looking for. So she felt like you needed more awareness before a woman would know to look for you. And um, all those bags, I got a call. The buyer said, so... We haven't sold any. We'd like to return them all. And we'll work with you in the future if you take them back. So that was sort of... And a, it was 300 bags. It was 300 bags. And it was, we'll keep them and never work with you again. Or you take them back and maybe we'll consider coming back and buying more from you when your brand is more well-known. So I think I... You know, I, I didn't really have a choice if you wanted to grow then because direct-to-consumer wasn't even a blip on anyone's radar. Um, so I took them back and I was like, how the hell am I going to get rid of these bags? And then I called my friend at Daily Candy and I was like, you need to write about my sample sale because it's going to be in my apartment. <laughs> so let's, let's do this. And did you get rid of all 300 bags? I got rid of all of them except for like 10 sad, like, destroyed samples but yes they were they were gone there was i lived on 346 east 18th street and i rented an apartment in the same apartment building so i lived in one apartment and then downstairs was my office but it was an apartment and so when i when i woke up that morning to like go open the doors there was a line around the block and all these women like they didn't care that they were going into some tenement apartment they were like let's do this so you work with your brother. I would love to hear your story of how you and your brother evolved from him funding part of your business to becoming your full-on partner. Yeah. So I think in the beginning, when, once the credit card was cut off and I needed funds and I actually had legitimate business, you know, with the sateen order and then they sold out after Daily Candy ran. And so I had called my dad first and he said, uh-uh, I'm done. 
uh, I'm scared you're never going to pay me back, uh, call your brother. And so my brother had a technology company and was doing quite well. And he started loaning me small sums of money and I would pay them back every time I got paid. But he could see, as any businessman, I guess, does or businesswoman, this sort of hockey stick like growth. And at each time I came to him with real orders, you know, it was doubling and tripling. And so he decided to get serious and sort of on the funding side, we couldn't get funding. VCs and PE wasn't something that was done then. It wasn't what it is now. There was no such thing as crowdfunding. So banks were like, hell no, we're not going to loan to you, you 25-year-old girl sitting in my office. And so he really stretched. He stretched a credit line he had. He mortgaged his house. He maxed out his Amex to buy leather. Um, And then, you know, he really worked to turn the business side into a real business. And so he became CEO and I had a deal with him. I said, when we hit 10 million, you're moving here because this cannot be a long distance relationship. So he moved his whole family and, and, you know, started working full time back in 2011. And how do you resolve any differences between you when they come up? So let's all be honest. Any people two or more that work together, full-time, related, married or not, you're going to encounter tough times, especially as business owners. And I think a brother, sister or sibling relationship has the added dynamic of you grown up with each other, you know how to push each other's buttons. And so for the first few years, it was all smooth. And then the explosions began. And we had reached a point where we hadn't been speaking And it's really hard to run a business that way. Like we would speak in front of others and no one knew that our problems were, but behind closed doors, we just refused to talk. And so that's when we called in like a professional couples counselor slash business mediator to really help us. And so he helped us not only, you know, frame rules around how we treat each other, but also really get down to what each other needs and wants. Um, because I think that's critical to understand what your partner married again, business or not, what do they truly need and want from you? And what do you need and want from them? And can you produce it? And that evolves, that changes, right? So it's that constant sort of check-in and making sure that everyone's still on the same page. So that's been incredibly helpful in keeping us from, uh, world war three. Do you still see the counselor? We do. We just saw him like two months ago. So when did you feel like Rebecca Minkoff became a known brand? You know, it had these like big pops, obviously, when when Daily Candy happened or when we opened our first store, you know, when we finally did a count and we were like, oh, my gosh, we're 900 points of sale. But I still think and I don't know, but like when you're hustling all the time and investing every dime into your company. Like, I still don't feel like we've made it as a brand. And my brother has to remind me sometimes he has to be like, you can't say that you can't act like that. We're a big brand. We're not like, you know, we're not like the girl in the backyard rubbing sticks together to like have a little cart and sell it at the side of the road. And I, I think that when you're this close to your business and you've been invested in it this long, it's hard to like pull yourself back and be like, oh, we're big. As an entrepreneur, I think you always have that goalpost that's ahead of you. And I know I feel like that where, you know, we just finished a raise and everyone's congratulating me. And all I can think of is the pressure I feel right now to make it worthwhile and put it to use and hit our next goalpost. And I think that when you're in it, 
it's hard to feel that sense of accomplishment or feel like you've ever made it. And that's what keeps you going, right? Is that that hustle never ends? The hustle never ends. And I think I had to come to grips with like the disappointment that I kept facing of, I thought I, I thought I'd feel fine if I just got here. I thought I'd feel, oh wait, I got here. Wait, that still doesn't feel good. And so it's like that disappointment of like, all I'm doing is setting these goals and meeting them. And the completion of that goal is not bringing me joy. And so I really have to get good at really loving the process. Like when I said, okay, I have to pre-sell 10,000 books. Let me enjoy this process because it's going to feel great when I hit that goal, not hitting the goal. Your brand is you, right? Like you design beautiful products, but it's your name. What is it like to have the brand with your name on it? So I think I've gone through different evolutions uh, with my relationship with the brand. Um, obviously, when I started, it was the same age and sex as my customer going through lots of different life stages. Um, we reached a point when I was about 31, when I had my first kid, where some people within the company were like, you know what? We're going to freeze our customer at 27 and we're just going to talk to her. And so when you show your kids on Instagram or that grown-up life at 31, that doesn't resonate with her. And I didn't agree, but I was like, well, these people are trained and they know what they're doing. And they're, they know more about social media and marketing than me. What do I know? I didn't go to college. And I listened to them. And so for, for a couple of years, it was like this disconnect of my customer is someone I don't recognize anymore. And I'm not sharing what I'm going through. And that didn't feel good, and it actually hurt us as a brand. But I had to almost dis disconnect myself from the brand and from me. And then there was a, a short period of time where we had a woman as president who was going to sell anything to anyone. And so she'd come to me with this outlandish request, like nerd alert on a computer tote. And I'd be like, that's disgusting. And she's like, do you want to be the one who doesn't make the year because we didn't hit our numbers or not? And I'm like, well, I don't want that pressure on me. Throw nerd alert on a tote. So then I'd like see women walking around and cringe and be like, oh, that's my brand. Oh, God. So, you know, I finally, I think, reached a point of maturity and strength several years ago. And I was like, that's it. It's me. It's it's my women. They've grown up with me. It's my life stages. It can also be young. Right. But it can also go old and it's going to be human. And so I think we've done a lot of work to change it and bring it back to that. And my customer was like, oh, yeah, I love you. You left me for a little bit because you were talking about only going out to clubs and eating chicken nuggets and champagne in the morning, but you're back, and I'm glad. And so it's been nice that the two can live closer together again. Do you ever feel pressure as Rebecca Minkoff that you're also representing this established brand? Yeah, I think I, I choose to complain with the right audience. I don't think it does me any good or my customer any good to vomit on them about my day. Yes, I'll appear more real, but does that actually help her? Does that make her go, ooh, I want to invest in this brand? But I'll definitely vomit on Amy, you know, and share with her my struggles and whatever if I get to see her or other other co-founders or our founders, right? So I pick my audience for who I'm going to like let my hair down with because they can provide me with a solution and they can listen with an intelligent response. I think the thing that I sometimes forget is the messiness of life. You know, like I'm at an airport, all three kids are misbehaving. I might have had a beer that was too too much too soon and I'm not doing my best to be present and 
food is spilling everywhere. And then these girls are like, we're your biggest fans. And I'm like chewing and I'm like, thank you. And sorry, like my kids are insane and food's everywhere and I'm slurring, you know, like, I think that's, that's my moments where I'm like, okay, I don't like that part. (laughs) Do you ever get sick about talking about the brand, about talking about your story? Like, do you ever get tired of it? Here's what I get tired of. And, and I've had to, for the book specifically, I knew that there was going to be a lot of media and press and I was going to have to tell the same stories over and over. But it drives me crazy when I meet someone and they're like, how did you get started? I'm like, Google it. It's like there. Ask me something else, like the questions you're asking me today. Um, that's when I get annoyed. It's like when someone asks a re- like a really dumb question that is has been printed and people know the answer to. And now for a quick break. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Tell us about when you met Gavin. I had a gentleman who was the love of my life, who broke my heart. Um, I thought we were going to get married. I thought I was going to be his kid's stepmom. All the things. He lived in L.A. And um, one day he called me and he was like, yeah, I think I want to date someone in real estate. So um, we're going to end our relationship. And I was like, I'll, I'll get interested in real estate. I'll buy a real estate. I bought real estate for dummies. That's how desperate I was to hold on to this person. And so every year, every New Year's Eve, I don't know if he was drunk or whatever, he would call me like, I want to let you know I love you. And I had tried several times to get back together with him. And it was New Year's Eve 2005. And he called me and I was like, I'm on the next plane. I'm out. You told me you love me. We're making this happen. And he didn't say no. And I basically went out there and on my way from the airport to his house, he's like, you can't come over here. I got a girl here. And I was like, like, I should have known, right? This, this, this guy had a habit of doing that. And so I went home to my parents' house. They lived in LA at the time and was sulking. And a friend of mine was like, you should come out with me tonight. I'm going to go to this house party and maybe we'll meet some people. So she took me there and, um, introduced me to a lot of guys. And I was like, ugh, not in the headspace for that. And then I went outside with her and I had this list and I was like, this is what I want in a man. And I was like very specific, like down to like green eyes and or, or funny or all these sort of qualities I wanted. And I walked back inside and there was Gavin. And I recognized him because six months prior, a friend of ours had tried to set us up and I went to his MySpace profile just to really date me. And I saw his profile and I was like, oh, this guy's immature. He put like a Sharpie mustache on his picture. Like, I'm not into that. And then I also had remembered meeting him very quickly in passing. I was on the phone with with my then boyfriend at the time, getting um, not the one I was trying to reunite with, but a different one, getting screamed at for not calling him enough. And like I remember, like my friend being like, "Gavin, that's Gavin," and we both like waved. And then he was at this party, and so I was like instantly shy. I was instantly like, "Oh my god, I can't talk to him." And she literally found an opportunity and pushed me into him. And all I could think about was to say, it was like, hey, I'm helping this charity put together a fundraiser and they need a band. He was a musician. And he was like, yeah, let me know. And we exchanged. Uh, I think I gave him my email and I knew I could find him on MySpace. So I went very swiftly to his manager who I knew was a friend. And I was like, tell me everything about Gavin. And he's like, oh, you guys would be perfect together. You need to meet. I'm going to tell him to have coffee with you. And Gavin was balking and I didn't know why, but he was seeing someone. And so finally he relented and we had coffee and he's like, I, I just want to let you know I'm seeing someone. And by that time I'd already saved his number in my phone. I was like, this is who I'm marrying. He's everything that I written down. And I, we were smoking at the time and I like took a long drag of the cigarette and I was like, let me know what happens with that. But inside I was like dying and we ended the night and about 10 days later, he called me and he's like, that thing's no longer a thing. Let's start talking. 
And then his phone basically broke. This is early cell phones here. So we could only text. So for like two weeks, we were just texting. And it allowed us to really ask questions that you might not ask on the phone. Like, what do you love to do? And it was a lot of yes, no questions. And then I flew out to L.A. to see if it was the real thing. And we've been together ever since. So how does Gavin not walk around the earth feeling like Mr. Rebecca Minkoff? Or does he and he doesn't mind? You know, he is a very special individual and that his masculinity or his identity isn't hurt or diminished by my being known. And, you know, I wasn't anything when we met. I literally was me and an intern and my fifth floor walk up. So it's, you know, I was actually trying to shack up with him partially because I was like, this guy's a really successful actor. Like he could buy me gifts and he could maybe, you know, pay for some dinners. Like, so if anything, I was like, oh, he's going to be the one to, to cover this little hobby that I have of handbags. And so I think because he saw it grow organically and from the beginning, he's really proud and he laughs, you know, when we'll go to a dinner and he'll say Mr. Minkoff and he'll laugh. Um, But he's just, you know, he has his own pursuits and passions and my success doesn't diminish his. And he's incredibly successful, but like, it's not a competition. You know, it's more like, babe, how can I help you this week? Which I know is rare and I feel really happy that I chose the right person. How do you divide all the parenting and all the stuff of life? We are really equal. We sit down and we're like, what's your day? What's my day? And we each take a load. Um, I'm out of town for two days. He's leaving the minute I come back for two days. And so I think it's this, we're constantly passing the baton. And, you know, I feel that guilt and maybe that's us as women way more. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then, you know, he's like, stop saying sorry. Please don't say that anymore. It's okay. And he knows And I think we both know there's ebbs and flows when one is busier than the other. And we just, you know, he calls it dad miles. And he's like, just put those dad miles in my account. And he cashes them in to go do late night poker or whatever. And I'm just like, or he's going to do a whitewater rafting trip with his guy friends. And I'm, you know, and then I, and then I'm as giving as possible when those moments happen for him. Did your relationship change when you became parents? It did. You know, I, we were having the conversation the other day because we have a set of friends and their relationship is the priority and their children fall to the back burner. And they leave their child more or children more than we leave ours and they take trips. And it is like they are each other's rocks in a way that I was like, is something missing from our relationship? Because our priority is our kids and never each other in terms of the date nights and the times away. And every once every six months we get to go do that. I was like, should we be more like them? And he's like, I don't know. I kind of like that we are putting our children first. And yes, we should get away more than once every six months. That's sad. But like, we don't need to leave them two to three nights a week. So I was just honest. Like, are we, are we, are we putting our relationship on the back burner? And he was like, you know what? Our kids are young. I think our relationship can be on the back burner and we can be like roommates for a little bit. And When they get older, we can do all those things and they don't want to hang out with us anyways when they're older. Talk to us about networking and women and and how more women can be better at it. I think that networking gets um, sometimes a a bad connotation and then you'll end up somewhere and because you're afraid to network, you don't meet anyone. 
I remember early on for me, like I counted business cards that I got, like it was cash when I would get home at night. I'd be like, I met this person and this person, this is an opportunity. And I think it's how you approach that person, right? We've all met the person that's skeevy and is using you and just wants something from you and then they use you and move on. And then there's the people that truly need your help and ask for a very specific thing and then send you a thank you note and casually keep in touch or see if there's anything they can do for you. And I think that that's the only way we get ahead. That's the only way we help each other. I mean, if, if we just take a look at what both of you do, I think we've all gotten somewhere because someone, woman or man, has helped us and it's because you met them and you made that outreach. And so... Now I don't hesitate when I'm asking for favors and then I know that if someone needs a favor from me, I'm happy to do it if I can. So I think viewing this as a two-way street, you, you might never be able to repay the person that helps you or that you network with, but you can give it to somebody else. I think makes it feel a lot less like a, a used tampon, to put it bluntly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to go to our speed round where we're going to ask you quick questions. You can give us quick answers. And then Lou Burns um, will come in with a male perspective and ask the final question. What book are you reading? Amanda Klutz's book is came out on the same day and she's a friend of mine. And obviously we are aware of what happened and what she's been through. So I'm at the tail end of reading her book because for our book launch, I had her be interviewed and um, I wanted to make sure that I had finished with that book before the event happened. Who leaves you starstruck? Oh, Oprah. I would love to be starstruck by Oprah. I love that woman. What is your nighttime routine? Lately, I, once the kids, so in, in the keeping of my husband and I share duties, I put the younger kids to bed, which takes about an hour because I guess I'm weak and I never sleep during them. <laughs> and he makes lunches in the morning as like the, the trade-off. So 10.30 is probably by the time they're actually asleep. I'll do some Netflix and binge. I did a lot. Yes. So 1 a.m. is probably when I go to bed after I've watched a couple of episodes um, of whatever I'm, I'm going through. I take a ton of vitamins. It's definitely a large handful of vitamins. I feel like it contributes to my my mental state, but also my helping my body with how fast I'm going. I drink this drink called Calm. It's like a magnesium drink that's supposed to de-stress you and help you sleep. And then I go put on like a slathering of face cream by Joanna Vargas or Sunday Riley, and then I go to bed. And pro tip, these babies make me look more awake, and I glue them on, and then I call it sleeping like Beyonce because apparently she sleeps sometimes with her own makeup on. So I leave the lashes on and then the next day it really distracts from like the swollen eyes that 40 year olds now get. How would your friends describe you? So it is my friend's truest desire and wish to have the world see unfiltered Becky as they call it. And it's my close circle where I can just say the things that are on my mind. There's no, there's no filter and I can laugh at myself and I, and I love, I love when I'm just reduced to tears by something that someone notices that's ridiculous about me. What was the last item that you splurged on? So when I signed my book deal, I then went to a showroom where they were having like a drinks and come see the last line. It's this LA based jewelry. And that was a lot of money. And I was like, I shouldn't be doing this right now. And then I had two glasses of wine and I was like, fuck it. I just signed the goddamn book deal. I am buying myself this $5,000 bracelet, okay? That's what I'm going to do. And then I bought the bracelet, and then I had another glass of wine real quick. And then 
every time I look at it, I'm like, you're my book deal bracelet. Like, yes. Rebecca, who was the designer? Um, her, her name is Shelly and the brand is called The Last Line. And she has incredible fine jewelry that if you're looking for something that's a little bit different than like your grandma's jewelry, but still classic, um, she fits that bill. All right, Lou. I was thinking about when people create a brand, you also create a demographic that you target. And me being a black man, but my girlfriend's Korean, I'm like, everybody markets to somebody, you know? So do you have a, I guess, a product designed for black people? So this is what I'll say. And some of it is learned learned from hearing women speak. And some of it is learned from data that we get. You know, every single person that I've met, and I've met a lot of my customers because I used to go all across the country to meet them. Starts with a, I got your bag when I got a raise, got my first job, quit my job, got a promotion, met a guy, got a divorce. Like these, these milestone moments for women. I don't know in the man's world, like maybe getting a watch is sort of the equivalent. But when a woman like gets a bag, it has a significance of like, yes, I've arrived or I achieved something. And that bag usually lasts longer than a pair of heels or a shirt that goes out of style. So it's definitely there for a longer period of time. And then I think we broke down our customer from what does she look for aesthetically from us? What's our brand promise? So we're a little bit of rock. We're a little bit of boho. We're never too much one or the other. And so she can expect that aesthetic from us. And then her mindset. Her mindset is she wants to be more fearless. She's optimistic. She wants to feel more powerful. And then something that was really important to me is, you know, my logo has always been very small, very discreet. I never, I hate it when a woman is wearing something because the plaque is $5,000. I want the woman to be noticed. And so I like the whole package. I don't want you to walk into a room, you know, with the women have a way of going like this with their bag of like, look how much money I spent today. I want everyone to be like, wow, that woman is so stylish. How can I get her look? So that's my approach with design. And it's not for a black woman or a Korean woman or a white woman. It's for every woman. And, and I'm happy that we have a diverse customer base. But I think, I think when it comes to a type of person, you know, we're making sure it's hands-free because women are busy or it has a lot of pockets because now we need pockets for everything. And so I think we think of that type of person more than a color of their skin or what size they are. That was so much fun. I mean, I I definitely, I'd read her book cover to cover. So a lot of the stories in her book, she shared with us. However, there were a lot of news stories too. And she's definitely super quick and really fun. Yeah, she's really great. The thing I love about Rebecca is she's just so direct. Like, I don't think that you get that enough in the world. And Rebecca's like, let's be honest here. Let's talk about this, right? Like when she's talking about her brother, like, let's be honest, like there's conflict. It's really hard. Of course it is. But I feel like a lot of times we always try to sugarcoat things, but like we should talk about how hard it is because this stuff is almost impossibly hard. Yeah, no, that was my first time meeting her. I know you know her fairly well. How do you know her? How do I know Rebecca? So it's really interesting. We talk about women supporting women in networking, which we touched on today. And I was introduced to Rebecca through somebody I met in Los Angeles and then through a PR firm I was working with. And Rebecca and I got to know each other. And then eventually, Rebecca's Female Founder Collective, which is another group that she she works on, yeah. came to the Riveter to do a big event. And you know what? Like That was really boosting for us because it was A, revenue, 
B, publicity, and C, brought in a ton of female founders who were the Riveters' clients. And so, you know, like those things come full circle and it's amazing. And then Rebecca got a beautiful space to do the event and and she got to support another female founder. And so those things, like they really, really, really do matter, those little connections. Yep. I just joined Female Founder Collective, but I haven't been active with them yet because I joined it in the pandemic. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's I think it's great. Listen, I think, you know, we don't talk about this a lot on the show, but women only receive 2% of venture capital funding, which Sam, in an amazing feat, closed a venture capital round during the pandemic. But, and also we have to know whenever we talk about the 2% of VC funding that goes to women, that's white women. You know, for example, black women last year raised like 0.0001% of VC funding, which is zero. But anyway, point is, women don't get funded. So their ideas don't get to go into the world at the same velocity men's ideas get to go into the world. And so Rebecca's Female Founder Collective is one of the many amazing initiatives out there that works on that. It's a huge problem. Yeah. No, we could talk about that for days. We should have another show just about that, Aim. I know we should. We definitely should. But this was a great conversation. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.